0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another critical care episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Brittany Bankhead with Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas, and I also have with me today Brian Dumas and Caroline Park from UT Southwestern and Parkland in Dallas, Texas. We're all trauma and acute care surgeons and surgical intensivists.
2: Thank you, Dr. Bankhead, for the introduction. Let's first review the format of this podcast, which will be scenario-based. So we will all first start with a scenario of an ICU patient with an arrhythmia, and it's going to be our job to work this up and review the literature behind our decisions. So take it away, Dr. Bankhead.
1: All right, so let's start with a patient in the ICU, obviously. Uh, She's a 55-year-old female, no prior comorbidities, status post-sigmoid colectomy for a Henshi-4 diverticulitis. In the ICU now, she's post-op day three and had been on low-dose vasopressors, but they've recently been weaned off. The nurse calls you now and says her heart rate is 135, and she doesn't think it looks regular on the monitor. Uh So Ryan, how are you working this patient up?
0: So uh, we see this all the time in the ICU and we get called a lot about it. And so uh, I think the first thing you have to think about is uh, what are the inciting agents and what are the inciting factors that contribute to atrial fibrillation in the ICU? So we know that certainly patients on vasopressors are more likely to have atrial fibrillation. Uh, patients with electrolyte abnormalities, for example, hypo- hypokalemia. And, and we also know that the sicker the patient is, the, the more likely they are to develop atrial fibrillation. So, uh, the problem is with a lot of these ICU patients, they really have a whole host uh, of uh, Procreate issues that could all be contributing to atrial fibrillation. So really, for somebody like this, who's 55, who's had a big, uh, big operation, and she's post-op day three, you really have to actually kind of start fresh with this tachycardia, right? Because it could be uh, something related to her surgery, it could be something related to her surgical wound, it could be a volume issue, uh, and it certainly could be a cardiac or pulmonary embolism. So uh, you know, I think like most uh, like most of these patients, we're going to go see, evaluate the patient, talk to the nursing, uh, see what her heart rate was uh, a few uh, hours before, see what's trending, how it's trending. Did she have a heart rate of 110 earlier in the day and slowly been creeping up, or is was her heart rate 80 and now it's all the, all of a sudden 135? So uh, I would start uh, with a full set of labs, including a cardiac workup, uh, and then I would uh, obviously, uh, I think, importantly, get a, a 12 lead EKG. Uh, because although, you know, the, the the ICU monitors can give you some hints uh, as to, to what the rhythm is doing and what the heart looks like, uh, we obviously need a 12-lead EKG as well.
2: I agree with Dr. Dumas. The EKG leads are really um, on the patient's monitor. can provide some information. But the gold standard really is the 12-lead. So, you know, it'll be able to provide more information on the wave morphology PR, QRS intervals. And um, in addition to that, let's say, you know, we, we've tried to get a little bit of a story put everything in context, but now it's like, is the patient unstable or stable from this, right? You're telling me that she is stable. She's not on pressures, but um, if they were unstable, I would, you know, put the, put some pads on the patient, get the, you know, the code card in there um, while you're doing the high quality 12 bleed. Um, you know, we often have a knee-jerk reaction to diagnose AFib with RVR, but of course there are other things that we need to consider like sinus tachycardia, supraventricular tachycardia, or SVT, and more serious arrhythmias is like ventricular tachycardia fibrillation. So those other rhythms need to be diagnosed and treated very, very quickly because the patients can decompensate very, very rapidly. Um, so that, that's kind of how I'd approach this stable patient who is not on pressors but has um, tachycardia. We're thinking maybe it's AFib, one of the most, most common arrhythmias that can happen in the postoperative um, period.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with y'all. I think the first thing I'm doing um, and that I'd want any of my residents to do, and that really can't be undermined, is going to the patient's bedside, just like you guys said. And this is not something you're going to want to work up and handle over the phone. Um, once you're there, ensuring the patient's hemodynamically normal is that first step. And just like you guys said, I'm going to make sure this patient has a good 12-lead EKG, not just that bedside telemetry strip, uh, sending a full set of labs, doing a good physical exam, and inquiring in the chart or of the nurse what the patient's eyes and nose have been since admission, because I think that's really going to drive our differential too once we roll out the bad stuff. Uh, the differential for tachycardia post op day three, just like Ryan was saying, is still super wide. Obviously, everything from PE, hypovolemia, hypervolemia, pain, a leak, new sepsis of a different source, cardiac arrhythmias, all of it. Um, since she likely presented with septic shock and is on the brink of all these new fluid shifts, like Like was mentioned, I'm really going to be interested in her recent urine output and EKG um, because now is really when we're entering that perfect time for atrial stretch and post-op AFib, like we know happens so frequently in the surgical ICU and on our floors. So, so let's say now that her urine output has been adequate and her EKG does show atrial fibrillation with RVR, are you going to be more focused on her rhythm control or her rate control, and how does that drive what medication you're choosing, Ryan?
0: I think uh, initially uh, the main I, the main goal is to get uh, the rate controlled in the ICU because um, if you have, for example, a patient who's on who's on pressors, and pressors are a risk factor for developing atrial fibrillation, epinephrine, dopamine, those are more tachyarrhythmic uh, pressors, uh, excuse me, pressors. Uh, and so if I can control her rate, then therefore that'll slow her cart her heart rate down and increase her preload, and then therefore increase her uh, the patient's stroke volume, which will improve smooth hemodynamics. So I think rate control is going to, and that's going to help us come off of the pressors, uh, which is going to then in turn uh, decrease the uh, the um, tachycardia, the tachyarrhythmias that this patient's having. So rate control is a priority, uh, in my opinion, in ICU, and that can be really obtained uh, primarily via two medications, you know, beta blockade um, or um, calcium channel blockers, specifically them. Um, so, you know, once the diagnosis, uh, but, but more importantly, the first question you have to answer at the bedside, uh, is, is the patient stable or unstable? Because that's going to, uh, immediately change your management in the, uh, the next foreseeable few minutes.
2: Yeah. So what, um, what you're referring to really is like the data is almost 20 years old, but we're talking about rhythm versus rate control. That, that was the great debate. Um, but it's a really great study by the Affirm investigator. So that's A-F-F-I-R-M looking at the outcomes between, rhythm, and rate control, meaning do I care more about converting the patient back to normal sinus rhythm from atrial fibrillation, or do I care more about actually getting the heart rate down? So that's what we call about rate control. So this was a very large study. It looked at more than 4,000 patients, and they essentially just evaluated the outcomes between the two groups. Granted, some of the medications used um, in the study were a little older, but they're really effective medications, like digoxin and sotolol can be very good agents for rate and rate control. But the punchline basically was is that there was no mortality benefit from the rhythm control. And also there were less adverse drug events in the rate control group. So I would opt for rate control in this patient. Um, In hypotensive patients with atrial fibrillation with IVR, amiodarone bolus and a drip is is effective. Um, However, if patients were previously on a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker and they're stable, in this case, the patients may be on a low dose vasopressor, I might consider doing beta blockade first or calcium channel blocker, but maybe like a lower dose and try like smaller short acting IV doses.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with y'all. I'm definitely pushing rate control first uh, in the ICU on this patient. That's going to be my priority. Uh, I'm first going to look and make sure <laughs> I feel like this invariably happens all the time. Make sure we're not missing a home medication that had been held. Um, and even if they're hypotensive and no one's tried a beta blocker yet, I'm definitely giving metoprolol. and going to watch it at bedside to see how the patient responds. If the hypotension is secondary to the AFib, which you've really already established in this case, then fixing that rate control is going to fix your blood pressure if you've got a transiently low systolic, um, at least in my experience. And what's going to be really important to remind those in the room who look at you funny when you're asking for a beta blocker in a hypotensive patient is that fact. Uh, My preference is to try two to three doses of metoprolol, five to 10 milligrams IV. Uh, And if still no response, I'm going to try an amiodarone bolus of 150 milligrams. After that 150, if they're still in AFib with RVR, I'll move to 300 and then start the patient on an amiodarone drip. Uh, But I really do try to avoid that knee jerk, putting the patient on an drip in a perioperative patient who's never had an issue with atrial fibrillation before. Uh, The other thing I always make sure my residents are doing in conjunction with ordering this rate control agent is thinking about how to prevent this from happening again, right? Um, Sometimes that means a diuretic. Sometimes it means dialysis or increasing what you're pulling on CBVH. Um, Sometimes, but less frequently, it means a scheduled beta blocker. So um, I think, you know, thinking about the etiology of this new arrhythmia um, and whether it's something that we can help prevent uh, from happening again is is also really important. All right. So what if I told you then that this patient actually did have a history of paroxysmal AFib and was on metoprolol daily at home? Is that going to change how you treat this acute episode?
2: Um, so one thing I, I uh, should have mentioned before was that we really haven't really talked we haven't talked about point of care ultrasound. And I think it's really important to evaluate if the patient does have a thrombus in their heart, right? Because if you do put them back into normal sinus rhythm and you convert them from atrial fibrillation they have a PFO or patent M in a valley, now you've, you know, they, they may potentially embolize that. So I think it's important to also look into that as well. So part of your workup should include a surface echo. Um, but as I alluded earlier, when we sometimes, you know, we sometimes hold the beta blockade in the perioperative setting for hypertension. I, I'm a strong believer that patients, especially with cardiovascular disease, should not have their beta blockers um, held, right? Because we know that that, you know, provides protection from perioperative cardiovascular events including MI. So with this patient has a known history of paroxysmal AFib. She previously was on metoprolol. That's probably going to be my first line therapy. I'm going to start with metoprolol or beta blocker. Again, short acting IV, you know, dosing, maybe like, you know, five milligrams or even two and a half milligrams IV. Um, and at certain intervals, Q6 or Q8 hours, and then introduce PO slowly if tolerated. If this patient has an alias then I might not, you know, introduce the, the PO um, as early.
0: Yeah, I agree. That, I would use the same approach. Um, uh, I think really the key for e- even in patients who have a history of AFib uh, uh, at home, in the ICU, patients who develop AFib, eighty almost 85% of them or just over 85% of them are going to re- resolve their, their AFib within the ICU. So there's usually always an inciting factor that has to be treated. And so that can get lost sight uh, of during the treatment of these patients. So you know, you're going to, we're gonna treat the tachyarrhythmia with uh, medications that we've, as we've described, but then you have to shift gears to figuring out, okay, uh, you know, what is driving this? And you know, Dr. Park talked about point-of-care ultrasound and left atrial size is, is directly correlated to the, to the instance uh, of AFib. And so uh, uh, that's an important uh, marker for the development of AFib. So then we have to talk about volume status and diuresing the patient. And then if the patient is still septic, people have catecholamine surges in response to sepsis, uh, also are going to be more likely to develop a fib. So do you have source control as the patient, is, and that goes back to our original uh, um, differential diagnosis, does, is does the patient have a leak and poor source control, which is causing a catecholine response in the development of, a, of atrial fibrillation?
1: Yep, I totally agree with both of you. Okay, so now let's go back again and say that she does not have a history of atrial fibrillation. This is her very first time developing it. Are you going to anticoagulate this post-op day three First time occurrence of AFib patient. Because um, I'll tell you right now, there's no way I'm therapeutically anticoagulating a patient in this category. Obviously, they'll get their prophylactic dose, but therapeutic, no way for me. Um, they're going to have to be, from, uh, under my watch, uh, in my ICU, at least you know, 36 to 48 hours of being uh, in AFib before I even start thinking about it. Um, but what about you guys? What are you going to do? Caroline?
2: I I agree. I think give them some time. I think 36, 48 hours is a very reasonable time. And often the majority of these patients actually do convert back to normal sinus rhythm. So um, I think it's worth doing the medical management first, um, you know, and and trying to see where you get before you start thinking about anticoagulation. Because obviously the risk, the real risk here is in a major surgery, like a laparotomy is the risk of, you know, bleeding complications. You know, in other patients, we obviously worry about hemorrhagic stroke, but um, again, kind of reiterating the importance of doing an echo evaluating further structural abnormalities. Gosh, I mean, if you had to anticoagulate this patient, you know, could you stop the bleeding eventually? Could you transfuse the patient? Absolutely. But that's something that you will have to have, you know, a discussion with, with your team, obviously talk to the patient as well, but I, and that's not going to be my first line therapy to anticoagulate the patient.
0: So what about for, uh, what are you guys doing for unstable AFib at the bedside patient? Same patient has rate of six, or, you know, a blood pressure of 60 over 40. Dr. Well, Manfred. that's where
2: that's where I would reach for my, you know, you know, amiodarone. I think it works pretty quickly, but someone like that who's that unstable, I think, just needs to be um, cardioverted.
1: Yeah, that's the answer.
2: Yeah, I it,
0: it that. is. It's, interesting. it's on so, it's
1: on your board answer, right?
2: Yeah,
0: so it's <laughs> interesting. I admittedly I, I read this when I was brushing up for this podcast, but uh, it's it's shockingly poor the success rates of uh, of uh, DC cardioversion. Mm-hmm. Um, about it, it's a single center study. Uh, but, uh, about a 71% success rate, uh, for patients, uh, upon uh, immediate cardioversion, but, uh, at one hour, only 43 remain in sinus rhythm and 24 hours later, only 23% remain in sinus rhythm. Now, of course, I think the idea is that you shock them, get them to sinus rhythm, treat inciting factor, and then hopefully that'll, uh, that'll, uh, uh, necessitate, uh, or allow time for your medical therapies to kick in and then to, to get some rate control or some rhythm control.
1: Exactly. And why, you know, while I like, there are obviously um, opportunities to have consultants in the ICU to help with other organ systems. I think this is the primary reason why I don't get cardiology involved as a knee jerk. Anytime someone develops AFib, because um, it is our job to get rid of that inciting event, just like you're saying in a perioperative patient and to not knee-jerk and anticoagulate the patient like you would maybe instinctively uh, in the outpatient setting in a cardiologist's office. Um, we know these patients better, and I just I think we uh, do a better job of that. Okay, so let's move on uh, to our second case. All right, so Ryan, you have a patient in the sicu, sixty-two year old male who is post-op day five from an x-lap. He had a uh, for trauma. He had a splenectomy, his femur was X-fixed, and he had a small subdural hematoma on his last scan, but it was stable on repeat imaging. A code blue is now called. What is your team doing?
0: So this is going to be obviously one of these kind of high-impact, low-frequency events. Um, so you're going to want to gather uh, gather your team, make sure you have all the help there, including anesthesia, if they're going to manage the airway for you. But you immediately you start the ACLS algorithm, uh, and so that's going to involve the uh, administration of uh, epinephrine uh, as well as uh, high-quality chest compressions. Uh, and when we say high-quality, it's uh, really you're looking for um, the compression fraction ratio, uh, which is associated with improvement in loss. So that's the amount of time the patient spent uh, in with active chest compressions uh, and towards not. So we've really gone away from stopping chest compressions except for a bare, bare minimum. Uh, So for my codes, I like to have arterial line access as well, because that's going to be very helpful Uh, and you really want to target a diastolic pressure of greater than 40, ideally, uh, because that's been associated with the return of ROSC. And the last adjunct that I like to use is entitled CO2 monitoring, Uh, and then that helps uh, you be, it's a good gauge for the adequacy of chest compressions, Uh, so usually that number is 20, Uh, so if you can ask the RT to to attach one of those little uh, digital readout uh, entitled CO2 monitors. That's really handy uh, for a code as well. Um, and so uh, as long as you're doing high-quality chest compressions, minimizing interruptions, you're monitoring entitled CO2, you're monitoring um, diastolic blood pressure, uh, and then uh, you're giving epinephrine, uh, you can then obviously put the pads on and see if there's a shockable rhythm. That's my general approach.
2: Yeah, I would never describe a code as easy, but with ACLS algorithms, running a code can be smooth as long as you have a sufficient and properly trained and experienced staff in your team. So everyone needs to know their roles. So uh, key components, again, maintain quality CPR, place patient on monitor, place pads on the chest, and while you're sorting all that stuff in the next two minutes, you know, then perform your pulse and rhythm check. If it looks like VFib or VTEC, you know you're you, you're going to defibrillate. If it's PEA, your management will change. Or asystole, right? You're going to continue with CPR. Um, if it's VFib, same rounds with defibrillate. PEA, continue with chest compressions. And then, you know, while you're doing all this, kind of going through your H's and T's, right? We've we've talked about that. We've remembered from medical school: hypovolemia, hypoxemia, one of the most common reasons why people go into PAs. Acidosis, hyper and hypokalemia, hypothermia, hypoglycemia. And, you know, if you think about your patient, this is when it's really important to ask someone who, you know, or, you know, if you're the ICU team, you know this patient, what is the most likely cause of this patient's presentation? Do they, did they have a pneumothorax? Did they have one? The chest tube was just removed yesterday. So could that be something that, you know, might help the patient putting a chest tube in? Um, Do they have a massive PE, right? So putting a quick probe on the chest to see if the right ventricle was very dilated, could that tip you off? In which case, yes. Are you thinking about doing TPA in this patient? right? That's, you know, that's going to be a hard decision to make because the patient has a subdural hematoma and it's in a closed space. So, um, so I, I think that's kind of how I go through my algorithm, basic ACLS algorithm, and then kind of going through H's and T's.
1: Perfect. All right. So now let's say your team gets Ross, the nurse gets a new EKG and it shows ST elevations in two, three and ABF. Caroline, what are you worried about? And what are you guys doing?
2: I am absolutely concerned about an ST uh, elevation, MI, or STEMI after obtaining ROSC, which can certainly be from demand, but either way, get a 12 lead um, uh, and confirm that. Um, But I would definitely activate the cath lab, ensure IV access, uh, start heparinization. And again, this patient has a subdural hematoma, so that's something I have to consider. Um, And then there's obviously that mnemonic um, oxygen, beta blockade, aspirin, morphine, Obama, Um, but really at the end of the day, time to groin stick is critical, right? And so I believe from time to symptoms to time to groin stick should be around 90 minutes because you basically want to, that's your goal is to revascularize the heart. What about you?
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I use a similar approach. Um, You know, if the patient can't take oral because they're intubated or, you know, you can do rectal uh, aspirin as well. Um, But, uh, you know, I think at this point, you'd probably heparinize the patient, assuming they've hopefully had one stable head CT Uh, And just, uh, you know, bite the bullet and and try to get to the cath lab as quickly as possible.
1: Yep. I I would do the same risk benefit of heparinization in this patient would definitely lead me to anticoagulate him. Um, Even if he didn't have a stable head CT since then, I mean, this clearly caused the patient to code and um, kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place, but I I think risk benefit for him is going to lead me to anticoagulate him. Um, And also, you know, in the interest of doing everything I could at the bedside, to help the patient make it to cath lab. I probably increase the FiO2 on his vent uh, at least transiently until he gets there to, to help out. However I can. Um, all right. So one more time, let's change it up. Now you have a 50 year old female, um, who also had a subtotal colectomy where we've got to run on those lately, I guess, uh, who developed sustained VTAC. Caroline, what are you going to do?
2: All right. So, um, big, you know, again, activate your code team. If, if the patient is, it's my question, my biggest question in my mind is, is the patient stable or unstable. Um, either way, the the code card is outside the patient's door. So if the patient's unstable, then again, act, you know, go through your ACLS algorithms. You're doing quality CPR, you put pads on the patient. Um, and then when, with your pulse and rhythm check, you diagnose that the patient has ventricular tachycardia. Um, so again, the, the, the algorithms basically is the patient unstable or stable. And I think you know, by unstable, you can kind of tease that out. Is it that they're just hypotensive? Are they altered? Do they have, you know, altered mental status? Any other signs of shock, um, heart failure, you know, um, acute heart failure? In which case, yes, you should consider doing synchronized cardioversion. And, um, and that would consist of like uh, 360 joules um, versus something like if it's uh, stable, you know, consider things like, is it SVT? Um, you know, make sure you look at the EKG. You can consider doing adenosine, six milligrams push that, repeat it again. Um, You can also try vagal maneuvers, but personally, I feel like that's never worked for me. Um, And uh, remember, I think with these patients that are awake, remember to administer conscious sedation prior to shocking them, okay? It is not a pleasant experience, so this patient absolutely needs to be in the ICU if something like this is going to happen.
1: Awesome. Brian, anything else to add to that?
0: You know, the SVT patient tends to be um, a bit of a different Beast, as far as what they look like at the bedside. And, um, but I think uh, a step up approach with vagal maneuvers is reasonable, uh, followed by six milligrams and then 12 milligrams of adenosine if it's needed. And then frequently, though, I've found that these patients just need cardioverted um, uh, and it seems to work pretty well.
1: All right. So let's wrap it up today. New onset AFib, normotensive in the ICU. What are you giving, Ryan?
0: New onset AFib in the ICU. uh,
1: Normotensive.
0: Normotensive. I would do the the good old uh, board answer five milligrams times three of uh, beta blockade IV, um, uh, uh, and then kind of see if there's a response. Awesome. I would do
2: the same. I'm going to reach for beta blockers, especially if they were previously on them, um, and then try the MEO and rhombolus and drip. but outside, of course, you know, treating the It's you know, again, going back to this whole of why it's happening. So the best, you know, kind of figuring out what is causing all of it.
1: Totally agree. Yeah, I'm doing the same. I'm reaching for beta blockers times three, then an amiodarone bolus, then an additional bolus and a drip if they're still in it. Um, all right. Any last minute pointers for those code situations in the ICU? Any good takeaways, things to remember and what's normally a really chaotic moment?
2: Going. I would say, you know, refreshing your ACLs algorithms, oftentimes the code card actually has a lanyard with the actual card and like the code leader actually has to wear it. So you can identify who the code person is, um, you know, and it, you know, they change maybe like every several years. I mean, I, I know the most, there has been a recent change, like in the past several years. So, um, it, you know, just kind of refresh yourself on that. But the, the really, the important thing is to have really good communication, assign your roles. And then as you're going down to that algorithm, you start kind of ruling out the H's and T's, um
0: what about you, Dr. Mal? Yeah, I agree. I think to be quite honest, I think uh the teamwork is probably more important than the time at which you give the epinephrine. Um so you know, focus on good leadership presence at the head of the bed and kind of running the code. Uh and then really though, I think the child, the, the if anything is there's two things probably. We probably uh, need to make sure we're ensuring high quality uh, CPR, so really minimizing the inter- interruptions. And also, I think we also tend to weigh over bag patients just as far as so as a team leader. Really, you can go like you know a f- six to eight a minute is more than enough because the more you inter- in- increase intrathoracic pressure, the more you decrease uh, 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 preload and cardiac return, and the less likely you're gonna have ROS. So because the, the the inclination is to do exactly the opposite, right? The RT or reverse bagging is very High, high stress situation, they're bagging a lot more. And pretty soon they're bagging at 20, is 20 and they're not completely letting the patient uh, exhale. So keep that in mind too. And that's why it's so important to have a team leader that can can look at the monitor, see the, the, the depths of chest compression, to see the diastolic blood pressure, see their recoil in the chest and those kinds of things.
1: Awesome. Yeah. And kind of to sequelae with that, uh, if you don't get ROSC at the end, if you're declaring a patient Um, I think it's important to remember uh, to disconnect the pads and the monitors as soon as you call the code, um, which seems easy enough to remember to do. But that transient electrical activity afterwards can really cause confusion among the staff and among your trainees. So um, definitely want to do that. And, you know, something else, since we're talking about codes uh, that I've seen happen in the trauma bay um, that you guys have even talked about and taught me is that moment of silence at the end. Um, and that's always something that you can do for you and your team and even any family who might be nearby. It might be um, might help bring some closure to the to the moment and the the situation. So um, on that note, that is all we've got today. We hope you learned a little something about arrhythmias and codes in the surgical ICU. We look forward to next time. And until then, dominate the day.